I don't know if you remember, but when we started this series about a month ago, we looked at the idea that Samuel has written the book of Samuel as uh, an expression of the outline that his mother, Hannah, sang to God. And some of the themes that she sang about was that God opposes the proud and he's drawn toward the humble, that God brings about his purposes even in the middle of evil, and God will raise up the king. We've now caught up to that place. We start seeing one of those themes from Hannah's song playing out in the narrative. The idea that God is drawn toward humility and he opposes the proud. And here's what's interesting. God is drawn toward humility in an Israelite, but God's also drawn to the humility of a Philistine if they're repentant. God opposes Israel if they're proud, and God opposes the Philistines if they're proud. So in one sense, God isn't on Israel's side or Philistine's side. He's on his own side, longing for people to humbly depend upon him. And today we're going to find the Israelites do the opposite. They are arrogantly presumptive upon God. In fact, in a few weeks you're going to hear a story of a friend, my friend Morgan here at the church that we interviewed recently. And he just told an amazing story of humility and crying out to God that we recorded on tape a few weeks ago. He said he's been coming to our equipping service the last nine months. It's during the last nine months he's come to know Jesus. And one of the critical moments in his journey to faith was traveling the world as an opera singer and just playing amazing places and accomplishing goals that he had. He found himself staying at a very luxurious place after a concert one night and wandering in the darkness with the moon lit in a vineyard and just saying, I've accomplished my goals, but God, I, I don't seem like... I have the meaning or purpose I'm longing for. And he said he fell to his knees in his vineyard at the end of a great night, looked up and said, God, help me, help me. Fast forward the next nine months, started attending our equipping service regularly and some connections to people at the church, introduced them to our church and ended up coming to know Jesus, getting baptized out here at Bass Island and beginning to reorient his life toward the life of purpose because God was drawn toward the humility he expressed that day. I'm not sure a lot of us think of ourselves as arrogant or proud or egomaniacs, but we are. What does pride look like? There's lots of different forms of it. Pride is saying, God, I know how life should go. And you're not making life go the way it should go. And so I'm kind of angry or resentful at that. Pride is saying, God, I know who deserves a lightning bolt and who doesn't. And so, God, don't forgive that person because what they did for me. But, boy, let me off the hook because, you know, my intentions were good. Pride is surrounding God, saying, I know what you must do. I've got you surrounded by this Christian formula. And, God, you've got to do what I'm telling you you've got to do. It's trying to control things that only God can control, like people and circumstances, through worry. I'm going to worry to control tomorrow. Sometimes pride is simply saying, God... I can't handle this if it goes on any longer. But you don't know what you can handle. Only God does, and he may give you the grace to handle more than you think. There's so many different expressions of pride, the inability to take feedback, the inability to apologize, the inability to own your own junk. But the message we're going to find today is that when you're arrogant, you have stepped out of God's grace and out of God's mercy, and you're operating in rebellion. And here's the challenge for Israel. They don't even know that they've run out and run low on God's mercy and grace and presence and protection. 
Like they don't even know that they stepped out of his will. Now, if you're friends with me, you're eventually going to, if you hang out with me long enough, you're going to eventually run out of gas with me. That's how you know you're my friend. Because you've driven around with me enough that at some point you ran out of gas with me. Now, my wife is a really, really good friend. Because she's run out of gas with me many, many times. And there's certain lessons one might learn when you run out of gas. And I'll tell you one of mine. We're down in Florida one time, and we got off the interstate. We turned down. We're on a a road just off the interstate. Uh, Quinn, I think, is like one years old at the time, and uh, Javen and Sierra, you know, six and eight. And and as we pull off the side of the road, all of a sudden, purr, 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 I mean, we're like, you know, below E, like below, below, below E. There's no reason. So I get that look of, of encouragement and affirmation from my wife <laughs> as she's holding our child. Well, she wasn't holding him. He's in the car seat. But, and I jump out of the car. I run down about a block, run over, and there's a house there, knocking the door. Oh, my family, we're sorry, we're out of gas. Could you get, sure, here's a gallon of gas. They grab the gallon of gas, run back, fill up the car, and we are up and running in like four minutes. I know, I timed it. It was amazing. Four minutes, we were back up and running. And I thought to myself, isn't this great? This is my record. This was not the lesson my wife thought I should have learned. I actually came away from that experience not saying I ought to check my gas gauge. Not, wow, this could really get me in trouble. I came away even more confident in my self-sufficiency. I fixed this one in four minutes. And one of the greatest expressions of pride can be self-sufficiency. I don't need God. I don't even recognize I'm running on E with God's presence because I've got my own ingenuity. That's where we find Israel today when it comes to how they choose to use the ark. God has removed his presence and they don't even know it. It says, then the word of Samuel came to all of Israel. Now remember, if you weren't with us last week, God has given a vision that he's going to remove his hand of protection and the people's ears are going to tingle with what's about to happen. So the word of the Lord came to all Israel and Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. And they encamped besides Ebenezer. So Israel's in Ebenezer and the Philistines are in Aphek. You're going to find out in a second. They're right next to each other. Then the Philistines put themselves in battle array against Israel. Well, God always defeats the Philistines, right? So when they joined battle, Israel was victor. Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men in the army in the field. What happened here? What happened was that Israel thought that if they had the box, they had God. And they turned God into a thing. And they presumed upon his victory. They're not obeying him. They're not worshiping him. They're not depending on him. They're using him. Just a little map to give you a feel for where we are. A little map of Israel. So Israel's over here at Shiloh, where we've been talking about where the ark has been. And they're going to move the ark to Ebenezer. Meanwhile, the Philistines, the sea people who live in this section, have moved north. And they're meeting at the Battle of Aphek here in Ebenezer. Now, if you go there today, you're going to find lots and lots of ruins that show where Ebenezer was. Here's an archaeological feel of some of the borders of a spot in Ebenezer. And you can see a modern city, Aphek, very, very close by. You can see the two. So Philistines are coming from the city. The, the Israelites are there with the ark, presuming God's going to deliver them. And if you remember again Hannah's song, God opposes the proud and he's drawn toward the humble. When they get defeated, they at least ask the right question. And here's the question. When the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord 
defeated us today before the Philistines. They recognize that something has happened that God allowed us to be defeated because we presumed upon his presence. Why did God allow them to be defeated? And why does God sometimes allow us to be defeated? Pride. In fact, our key verse today is a great verse, and you see it embedded here in the verse exactly why it is that God allowed them to be defeated. Look carefully at the word that's used here by Samuel. It says, Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. Now, isn't that interesting? It. It doesn't say he, who. It's it. They've turned God into an it they can use for their purposes. So we're going to look today at three lessons of the box that can come against pride and ego in our own life. And what's the first lesson? Well, the first lesson is about assuming. Assuming that God's in the box is not going to put God in the box. When you move Shiloh into some area of life, say, God, your job is now to fix this, do this, deal with this in my life. And you think that just because you've got the box, God has to come with you. That's a major assumption. And when we presume or assume on God, we don't, we don't get the victory. When you assume you can put God in the box, he is not going to stay in the box. Here's what it says. Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant, the God box of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that it comes among us. It may save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from there the Ark of the Covenant, the box of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies is with us. Well, his boxes. Who dwells between the cherubim? And remember, on the top of the Ark are cherubim. And God said to Moses, he dwells between the two. So if we got the box, we got the God. And guess who's carrying this ark? The two sons of Eli. Hmm. Hopney and Phineas, Because only priests could carry the ark. The two guys who the Bible told us don't know the Lord and have been acting in rebellion and worship most of their lives. And again, do you see the presumption? Even if we're not obeying the Lord, even if we're not following the Lord, even if we don't know the Lord, we can still use the Lord. But assuming God's with the box is not going to put God in the box that he has to do your purposes. And though God said that he dwells between the cherubim, he cannot be contained in the universe. Now, do you ever presume upon God? Because I do. I presume what he must do, what he won't do, how long he'll let something go on. I do a lot of assuming. But God will not be put in a box. I wish he could. I wish he could. But God is too big for any box and any assumption. Now, already we see some assumptions, not just in what they're doing with God, but like when we went to build this thing for this series, we went and looked up on Google what cherubs look like. And the top ten pictures look like this. Two winged women bowed together on the ark. Is that what a cherubim looks like? What does a cherub look like? Maybe you think, oh, cherubs, those are like those baby angels around Valentine's Day that shoot little arrows at you. And even in the Renaissance, they start drawing, uh, Christian artists start drawing cherubs to look like that. None of that comes from the Bible. In fact, it didn't look like women bent over. They did have wings, four wings. But let me tell you what a cherub looks like. 
Because I think a lot of times we assume on God things he's promised, things he's doing that we picked up from somewhere, but not from the Bible. In fact, God made several different spiritual beings. The Bible's actually pretty complicated in how many different spiritual beings God made. There's sons of God and Nephilim and Elohim and cherubim and seraphim and, as Ephesians says, principalities and powers and rulers. There's spiritual hosts and angels and archangels and demons. That's a big list. But what does the Bible say specifically, like the cherubim look like? We're going to look at that today. And the Elohim look like? Well, the cherubim. What does the cherubim look like? Well, that's weird. It's a four-winged, four-faced beast. Imagine two of those sitting on here. Why would God have that, the cherubim? Here's what it says in Ezekiel. Now, each one of them had four faces, and each one had four wings. Their wings touched one another, and the creatures did not turn when they went. But each one went straight forward. For the likeness of their faces, each had the face of a man, each had the face of a lion on the right side, each had the face of an ox on the left side, and each of the uh, four had the face of an eagle. And this was to represent God's kingdom. He was king over man, king over the birds of the air, king over the wild animals, and king over the domesticated animals. So the ark was a visual picture of two cherubs leaning their wings down toward the mercy seat. And God dwelt here symbolically as a way of saying, I am king over all the kingdoms of the world. At no time was this, and I assume I can use the king of the world to accomplish my purposes. If we can do that with something as simple as a cherubim, imagine how many other things we presume upon God things we picked up over time that we applied to him. In fact, I was talking to a friend of mine recently. He and his wife had prepared financially for their retirement. They'd gotten to those retirement years and were just so excited about all the time they're going to spend together. I called him up last Saturday. Because about five years ago when they hit retirement, she suddenly developed Alzheimer's at a very young age. And all of a sudden, all of their plans and all of their hopes disintegrated before his eyes. And I called up my friend Harry. I said, Harry, how did you deal with the challenges of that? He said, well, Chad, I started reading theology books. He actually said that. You started reading, he was a moody professor, so I guess that made sense. Um, I said, why did you read theology books? He goes, I had to go back and revisit what I believed and see what God really promised me that I believed and what he didn't promise me that I thought he promised me. I had to revisit my belief system and re-engage my beliefs. And that's how I took care of my soul care. I thought that was so profound that he went back and looked at his assumptions and asked himself, did I assume God promised me something he didn't? Or did I ignore something like, in this world you will have tribulation, that I need to believe deeper? Have you put God in a box with some of your assumptions? about who he is, what he does, what he doesn't do, where he's at, what a cherub looks like. Assuming God's in a box will not put God in a box. Number two, cheering that God's in a box will not put God in a box. Now this is interesting because I think a lot of times I try and use reverse psychology on God. Now maybe you don't, but I try something like this. Oh Lord, don't send me to Hawaii. Oh, Lord, don't bless me with power and riches. 
No, I couldn't handle it, Lord. Right? I think sometimes we think we can manipulate God, steer God through emotionalism, sentimentality, or just really feeling it in our heart. Now, God loves authentic worship. God loves to hear grieving hearts like he did with Hannah. But you can't manipulate God. And cheering that God's in a box, cheering about God being in a box, is not going to put God in a box. And when the Ark of the Covenant came to the battlefield, to the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook, Freedom! The Ark is here! They sounded their barbaric yawp. Now when the Philistines heard the noise from this shout... They said, whoa, what does it sound like? What does it mean, the shout of a great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. There's no lack of passion. There's no lack of noise. There's no lack of, we can do it! But there's no prayer. There's no dependence. There's no worship. It's just loud cheering about the box. And cheering about the box is not going to put God in a box. So I want you to picture now the Israelites with the ark coming to Ebenezer face to face with the Philistines. In fact, I want to take you on location to this spot. Because that location today is pretty amazing. As we leave Horizon and we head over to Israel, we're going to go to a place. And it's called Tel Antipatris. And it's named actually by King Herod, the one who tries to kill Jesus. He built a fortress 1,500 years later on this location in Ebenezer. And so imagine the Israelites coming on this area, this green, with the ark. And if you look just in the distance, you can see the city there, the city of Aphek, where the Philistines are coming. And they think, they're presuming that God will be their fortress and God will be their protector. And how ironic is it that 1,500 years later, Herod the Great, the one trying to kill Jesus, builds an actual fortress here at this location, named after his father. And while they're trying to use God's tabernacle to protect them, King Herod will try and destroy God's ultimate tabernacle, Jesus. And Jesus will defeat Herod with his mighty fortress and his mighty palaces. And God will remove his protection. God will remove his ability to be Israel's fortress from this spot in Ebenezer, in Aphek. Why and how? Because of arrogance, because of pride, because they weren't dependent upon God. God does not have to be your fortress. No, God is drawn to those who humbly say, God, we need you in this moment. And sentimentality and loud noises and emotionalism does not manipulate God. So assuming God's in a box doesn't put him in a box. Cheering about God being in a box doesn't put him in a box. What God wants from you, what God wants from me, is to trust the God of the box. How do we do that? Well, so we get into and we see the Philistines' response. So the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. Isn't this amazing? The Israelites recognize the power of God more than the Israelites. For God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for such a thing has never happened before. We've never had to face the God of the box of the Israelites. Woe to us. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. And God's about to strike 
the Philistines with plagues. But here's what I want you to notice. The word used here is Elohim. It's the exact same word used here, here, and here. And yet one time it gets translated God, singular. The other two times, same word gets translated God's, plural. Elohim. How can that be? Well, it's interesting because the Bible teaches monotheism. There's only one God. And yet, isn't it weird that the Bible's constantly talking about other gods? God comes and says, I defeated the gods of the Egyptians. There's only one God, right? I'm going to come and defeat the gods of the Philistines. Oh, you mean their statues? No, he's talking about more than that. In fact, if you remember many years ago, we did a series on Exodus called, Are You Ready to Rumble? And I showed how each of the plagues was aimed at a specific Egyptian god. Well, Chad, which is it? Is there one god or are there many gods? Well, the Bible teaches only one god. There's only one creator. There's only one self-sustaining one who made everything. The word Elohim, though, actually has a bigger meaning. So God is Elohim, but the word Elohim means a spiritual being. Now, God is not just a spiritual being. He is spirit, but he's the creator. But he created, remember that list I gave you? Lots of spiritual beings. And some of those spiritual beings, the Elohim, his created beings, which include angels and and the sons of man and many other things, rebelled against him. And those spiritual beings, the Elohim, rebelled and they were thrown down to earth and they began to work in different civilizations to raise up idolatry and raise up false worship to begin to corrupt God's people. And so the Philistines recognized it wasn't just God defeated the Egyptian armies. He destroyed their spiritual forces, their Elohim. And he's going to come after their Elohim in just a moment. I think this is helpful to understand because this understands why the Bible is not saying God says, hey, I came to defeat just the statues. I came to defeat these spiritual evil forces, Elohim, behind those statues that you see. So here's what might be helpful. Kind of a a little background on, on where these spiritual forces came from. So the Elohim, Yahweh, the only creator, the only real God, creates spiritual beings, the Elohim. They're also known in Ephesians as rulers and principalities and powers and the sons of God in the Philem in Genesis. Now, the Elohim, these spiritual forces, many rebel against God. And these fallen spiritual beings take over nations of the earth. And so if you remember in Genesis chapter 6, it's a bizarre story of these, these spiritual forces coming down and pregnant women and making the, kind of the world a bad place and God has to wash it away, Right? But then at the Tower of Babel, many of us know the story about how God confuses the languages, but more than that happened. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8 and 9, that at the moment that God scattered the nations, he also disinherited the earth and he gave the nations over to these dark forces, these these evil forces to take over the world, the Elohim. In fact, it says in Psalms 82, God the Elohim, the creator, turned to the other Elohim, the spiritual beings, and said, you have led my people astray. Though you say you are gods, I'm going to hold you account for how you've led the people astray. So you might want to look up those verses and dig into it. But here's kind of how that plays out here. So then when we get to the Elohim God, the creator, shows himself mighty over all the other spiritual beings because God allows these different spiritual forces to be behind different nations of the world. 
quick reference from Daniel. So in Daniel, remember, God's, Daniel's praying, God, help me, help me, help me, help me. Michael, the archangel, shows up. Hey, sorry it took me like 30 days to get here. Well, at least you're here now. God sent me right away, but I couldn't get to you because of the prince of Persia. Who in the world's a prince of Persia? A spiritual being, an evil spiritual being that's over Babylon. Where did that guy show up from? He showed up from what happened at the Tower of Babel. God allowed these fallen spiritual beings to take over the different nations. So behind the different Egyptian idols is a spiritual evil force. Behind the, 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 the idols of the Palestines is a, or the, the Philistines is a spiritual force, an evil spiritual force. And the Philistines recognize this. God defeated the Egyptians and their gods, their Elohim. He's going to come after our army and our Elohim. So with that in mind, look how the Philistines respond. So the Philistines were afraid because the God, Elohim, the only creator spiritual being, has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us! Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? The Elohim. These are the Elohim who struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. And their God's name is Dagon. There he is, good old Dagon. He's the fish god. But it's not just they had a statue. They had a ceremony where they would invite spiritual forces into their statues. It was called the breathing or the opening ceremony. When you built a statue of something, you would invite the evil forces or the Elohim into them. So they believed not just this was a statue of their God, that their God inhabited this place. And in Deuteronomy 32 that I already referenced is a verse that Paul picks up in Corinthians. He says, when you sacrifice to idols, you're actually sacrificing to demons. Look what he says. They sacrificed to demons, not to God, to gods they did not know. So the gods they did not know, Dagon, was actually a demonic force behind it. Huh. Which brings us back to the question of trusting God. Because the Egyptians and the Philistines story comes in sync here. And the Philistines and the Egyptians have fought each other before. In fact, archaeologists have dug down, in this case didn't even dig down, they just uncovered this incredible wall that the Egyptians have of the time they fought the Philistines. If you look between the second pylon and the third pylon, there's different sections telling the story of how the Egyptians fought the Philistines. Um, They celebrate victory over the sea people, that's what they call the Philistines. There's a sea battle, there's a lion hunt, another sea battle, they march to battle, they prepare for battle for the sea people, then they celebrate victory over the Libyans here. If you zoom in on one of the walls, you will see that they actually defeated the sea people. They put them there. If you look, you can see the people sitting, laying down. They've been turned them into slaves. They're sitting now, the sea people. They've been enslaved to the Egyptians. So the Philistines are thinking, oh my goodness, we've been conquered by the Egyptians before. And now the God who defeated them is about to come after us and our gods. So how about you? I'm not bowing down to any fish statues anytime soon. I don't find that a temptation any day of the life to bow down to fish statues. But oh my goodness, might you be bowing down to idols and giving a foothold or a snare to spiritual forces in your life? Should we take idolatry much more seriously? Are we trusting the God of the box? Are we trusting some other good thing we've turned into an ultimate thing? And we've created an avenue, a pathway for a spiritual force to take control of a life. 
There's no lack of idols. The human heart is an idol machine. It could be being a good mom, being a good dad, being productive, being free, our status, our reputation, our performance, how we come across, how liked we are. These are all good things. But you take those good things and make them the source of your identity, make them the source of your peace, and you've turned them into a god. And by turning them into a god, you're no longer trusting the god of the box. You're trusting a different god. And you're really living for this god. You're sacrificing to this God. My friend Jeff shared a quote from Fred Rogers. I thought it was so great. Fred Rogers said that the older I get, the more I'm convinced that nothing I can buy can take away my loneliness, fill my emptiness, or heal my brokenness. Nothing you can buy, no material thing you can get is ever going to take away your loneliness fill your emptiness or heal your brokenness he got a call a few months later from his father his father just retired and his father said oh i just retired i bought myself a retirement gift oh dad jeff said what'd you get he said i got something that's gonna fill my loneliness take away my emptiness and heal my brokenness and it's called a bmw right he says well dad at least you're listening to my sermons and we know it's a great car is it going to, how long will that joy last? Three months? Two years? Right? And that's time to upgrade, time for something better. And that's my point. Things are really good at being things. But things are very bad at being God. And if you turn a good thing like your freedom or people's approval or how productive you are or your health or your ability to perform into your God... If so, there's two ways you need to wrestle with how to trust God. And the first one we see the Philistines say, which is you need to hiya yourself. Hiya! The Philistines are talking here, but they stumble across incredible truth. Be strong and conduct yourself like men. You Philistines, that you do not become like servants of the Hebrews. As they have been to you, conduct yourself like men and fight. So the Philistines fought. And Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent. And there was a great slaughter that day, and there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And the Ark of the Covenant was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Now the word conduct yourself can also mean to quit yourself. But here's what the Philistines understood. Guys, you can't just talk about your Elohim, talk about Dagon being supreme. You've got to conduct yourself as if you believe it. You can't be fearful that our God is not powerful. You've got to act like it in battle. How ironic that the Philistines understood to hiya yourself is to quit your fear and quit the disconnect between faith and action. That's exactly the problem the Israelites had is they didn't do it. They believed in God. He's in the box. But they didn't conduct themselves in worship. They didn't conduct themselves in prayer. The guys carrying the ark don't even know God. They don't see any connection between what they believe and what they do and conduct Israel need to hiyah themselves and realize that I'm not trusting God because what I say I believe and what I am conducting myself they're totally out of sync are you out of sync are you doing what you say you believe are you believing I'm getting to heaven but it's totally unrelated to how you live 
The second aspect of trusting yourself is that this location of Ebenezer will be a place of the worst defeat. I mean, look at those numbers. 30,000 foot soldiers die this day. This will be a place of humiliation. Yet. Did you know it's not called Ebenezer in this chapter? Yes, it is, Chad. I just read it. Well, it's because Samuel wrote it later. It's not being written in real time. Samuel names this place Ebenezer three chapters later. Here's what he says. Israel went out to battle against the Philistines here in our chapter 4 at a place called Ebenezer. But if you jump down to chapter 7, that's when he names it. Samuel took a stone, standing stones, and put it up to commemorate this place three chapters later. And he set it up, he called it between Mizpah and Shen, and he called this place Ebenezer in chapter 7. And here's why he called it Ebenezer. Thus far, the Lord has helped us. Samuel took the place of their greatest defeat and humiliation and renamed it Ebenezer. Thus far, God has helped. Can you trust that if you're going through a difficult time or hard time or defeated time or things you don't like and a season you don't want, will you say, God, I'm going to trust you. I can't use you. I'd like to fix this, change the circumstance, but can I trust you? that you will use these difficulties, these challenges, and these defeats to become my Ebenezer. I'm going to look back on this time and I'm going to say, oh, Ebenezer, this is the time that God helped. And he took my moment of defeat and turned into victory. To do that, you're going to have to do what the Israelites didn't do until a couple chapters later, which is repent. And to repent of pride And part of that is this main idea we talked about. Are you relating to God as a who or an it? Is God an it to accomplish your kingdom or a who that you want to get to know regardless of the circumstances? Because if you look at the whole passage together, when it comes, it will save us. But then if you go down a little farther, that they might bring from the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. Is God a who? that you want to please, that you want to love, that you don't want to grieve? Or is God an it that you use to accomplish your purpose? Pride is turning God into an it. Humility is, God, you're a who, and what you say goes. I was wrestling with my own idols this week and the ways in which I've turned God into an it rather than a who. I was writing in my journal, God, I am not my circumstances. But man, I act like it. When my circumstances are good, I feel very close to God. When my circumstances are bad, I feel very far from God. God, I am not my circumstances. God, I am not other people's happiness. I like it when people are happy, but I'm not defined by other people's happiness. And then I found a new one, a new idol. God, I am not my ability to make progress. I like making progress. Progress is a good thing. I celebrate progress. But there's sometimes you can't make progress. And I am not my ability or lack of ability to make progress. God, you're going to be with me when people are happy and when circumstances are bad. You're going to be with me when things are progressing and when things are stuck in a standstill. God, but I want you to be the who, not the it I use to make my life progress. So I want to pray for us, and I want to give you a chance to sing with me this last song, which is a song really of confessing to God and saying, God, I'm so sorry that I turned you into an it.
Let's pray together. Father, God, we just confess our ego and our pride and our arrogance, our self-sufficiency, and the fact that you could leave our, our life and it may take a few days or weeks before we even notice it. God, we come humbly before you and we know that you are not pleased at being ignored. And Father, may this song be our confession to you that we want to walk humbly before our God. In Jesus' name, amen.